Welcome to The Good Complex. Thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't ever seen this show before, we are all about tackling the issues that affect us today. And some of them can be really tough to talk about, a little complicated, but also very hopeful. And that's why we decided to start this series on lessons from the pandemic because I'm here with Jeff Jones and Jeff, you and I have talked about this a lot. There were so many things that bubbled up to the surface during the pandemic that we either didn't know were there or had been lingering there for a long time. And you had the opportunity to talk to a guy named Dwight Jusen about some of these things that we've learned from the pandemic that are still shaping our everyday lives. Yeah, Dwight's a fascinating guy. We're going to see that. Um, you know, in the in this series, we're looking at really what happened in the pandemic that either revealed what was already there or maybe that accelerated what was happening. And it's, it's kind of like what's happening in the Colorado River Basin, you know, with Lake Mead and Lake Powell being down like 80 percent. And now you can see things like bodies and barrels that nobody knew was there. Oh, man. And, you know, all this <laughs> stuff. Right. And, and, you, and boy, we didn't know that was there. And I think the pandemic kind of did that. It sort of emptied out a lot of things, and you and it and then you you see the values of our culture, you see the problems in our culture, you mm -hmm. see the opportunities, are, you see all kinds of things. Dwight is a really fascinating guy, super smart. He is one of the top branding experts in the country. Uh, so people from you know lots of companies use. I, I remember when uh, Johnson and Johnson, the Tylenol thing happened, where there was tampering. You know, the CEO of Johnson Johnson, here you're going to call to rebuild trust, called Dwight. Uh, he's just a, a, a super smart guy who is, his, his, his focus is on sociological and psychological research to say, okay, how, what's going on in culture and, and how can companies connect their brand to people in culture with whatever's going on. And so therefore, very fascinating to talk to him about this. In fact, you're going to, he's so smart that one of the awkward things I think about what we're just, what we're about to see and listen to is uh, abnormally long pause after he talks for me to ask the next question. <laughs> uh, if I, I, I think it'd be good to put like a little subtitle, it just says awkward pause or something like that. Like a little thought bubble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I, I'm not, a, I'm not as going to sleep. It's, he just makes you think down a pathway that you wouldn't otherwise think down. And so I'm just like, Oh, wait a minute. I, I got to put this, I got to think about this just a second before I ask my next question. And again, super insightful. If we had to pay for him, we couldn't afford him because uh, <laughs> people pay him a lot of money to do what he does. And so it's, it's really, really great to have Dwight. And I know that it's going to add a whole lot into this series as we think about uh, what, what we can learn from the pandemic and what it means to go forward. Yeah, this is going to be like taking a mastermind class, listening to his perspective. So I'm really interested to watch it. So let's check it out right now. Perfect. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be here. And, and you're coming to us from, uh, where are you right now? I'm on Vashon Island, which is outside of Seattle, Washington. If I look out my window, there's Mount Rainier right across Puget Sound. That sounds pretty amazing. So any, anytime island is part of where you live, that's got to be a good thing. Um, so Dwight, let's talk about lessons from the pandemic. So, you know, in your career, you're a psychologist, you look at social dynamics, uh, business dynamics, you know, you, you, you're an expert in human behavior and researching and studying what's happening in culture. That, that's what's built your career. 
and and therefore uh, really helpful today as we're looking at what's happening in the pandemic. And I guess my first question is, as we're coming out as a culture of the pandemic, where are we as a culture? Like, what is uh, what are the the, the things that, that are animating our people's lives that are driving culture? Just just what is the condition of our like? Just where where are we? Great. You know, Jeff, it's interesting. I think a lot of us daily ask the question, "What the heck is going on in our world?" Yeah. And and um, uh, you know, some folks have a have clarity about that answer. I actually worry about people who have real clarity about that answer because I don't think it is clear uh, what's going on. But I, I very much like your Lake Mead analogy with the uh, pandemic. I think what the pandemic has done is revealed and amplified what are actually long-term trends that have been going on in the country. And let me, without going too much in the weeds, try to talk about that a little bit. Um, I'd start with the economy. Um, the pandemic was also an economic event um, and it had tremendous impact on, on the economy as we all know, and on a lot of people. And of course, disproportionate impact on people of color or, or, or poor people. But the, the pandemic didn't create that at all. Um, and if you'll allow me, Jeff, uh, just to pull back and, and try and put this in a little historical perspective. In World War II, we justifiably, I would argue, um, bombed the entire production capacity of the world. Um, uh, you know, Europe got taken out, South America wasn't much there. What was in Asia was taken out. And, 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 and all for understandable reasons. In 1949, the Marshall Plan, I think about as a starter loan to restart the world economy. And we did. And the period from, I would argue, 1949 to 1981 was a remarkable and almost unparalleled in world economic history period of time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we had, uh, well, you know, I've got a job, but in a couple months, I'm going to get promoted. I, I got a home. Well, that's just my starter home. I'll have a, another home. And a, a set of, of uh, economic opportunities and possibilities that were really unthinkable two decades earlier. Um, and and unthinkable, to, pardon? And pretty much broadly open. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 you know, let's not romanticize the 50s and 60s. There were right. certainly lots of struggles. Yeah. But from an economic point of view, it was a remarkable period. We sold goods, infrastructure, and services globally. Um, uh, you know, we still account for about a quarter of the world's uh, uh, economic activity. Mm. But by 1981, the recession of 1981, I think was a signal that the world had caught up. Europe was producing, Asia was producing, my goodness, China, India, very much back online and, and a big thing. And in fact, in 2020, Jeff, just as an aside, we saw for the first time the number of of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of companies um, uh, over X billion dollars, I mean, more, so, more of those in China than in the US. 
I think we're all grappling as a country writ large with that period of time which we all took as normal. And I would say again, 49 to 81, normal and can't figure out, well, why isn't the world like that anymore? And, and, and that's not to say, gee, doom and gloom for America at all. It's just to be realistic about what that means. And, and, um, and, and since then, I'll just give you a, a couple statistics, Jeff, not, not to bore you. But um, uh, since that period of time, um, and over the last 20 years, um, uh, the middle class has declined from 61% of pop to 52%. Middle wage earners have only increased 1.1 their standard of living, and 54% of those gains have been taken up by inflation. You know, pretty flat. And of course, we all know that the median wealth of white families is 10 times that of black families and seven and a half times that of Hispanic families, regardless, by the way, of college education. And that the gains over the last 20 years have been concentrated in a small segment of sectors and in only 25 cities and hubs in the U.S. While low growth in rural counties where 77 million people live have had flat or falling employment growth. So the pandemic certainly shone a light on that, but these are long-term trends. And I'm gonna come back later on, Jeff, to talk about how we're wrestling, because if in our minds, the 50s, early 60s, that was normal, that's the way should, things should be. Because of that, I would argue, economic bubble, and they're not now, that's a real contributing factor. So the pandemic didn't cause that, but it amplified that and shone a bright light on it. So the economic disparity, the kind of the bursting of the American dream, which you would say, I guess, from the 50s, 60s, and 70s was just an anomaly that we're probably never going to see again. So how do we adjust to a, to a world that's different? And Not unless what we are, bottom what the, the entire production capacity of the world again, Jeff, forgive me. <laughs> yeah, hopefully that won't happen. Um, but yeah, I do want to come back around to that of just, you know, I, I know there are different approaches to economic disparity and expectation, um, that divide, but I think we can all say, man, it, it's not the way it should be. And the pandemic certainly spotlighted that some people, I mean, certainly when you look at the stock market and all that, some people became tremendously, the wealthy became tremendously, tremendously more wealthy. Uh, many others fell tremendously farther behind. Um, let's keep going. That's that's one body in a barrel. That's, that's, let's let's that's, go. That's, that's one a terrible element. image, but yeah, let's do I, another. I, I, yeah. I would argue there's three others, and let me go there. And by the way, Jeff, I know there's controversy, and people say, well, this data is from McKinsey. <laughs> it's yeah, hardly right, a, right. A, a liberal, you know, uh, kind yeah. of a, a, a data source. Yeah. Let me go on. You know, so those economic realities are real. The, the second factor I'd argue, and I think this is an important one, is, is the decline in trust in American institutions, and it's across the board. 
you know, I, I think that started in the, the 70s with Watergate. Um, uh, one can argue what the inception of that was. The reality of that now is that we don't trust our institutions and we're not participating in them in, in, in the way that uh, we used to. As recently as 25 years ago, 50% of Americans volunteered regularly. That number is down below 25% now. Um, but um, across the board, it doesn't matter which institution you want to look at, um, public trust and regard in that institution is rapidly declined or declining. Um, uh, you painfully know what that number is for churches, uh, church and organized religion. And by the way, the drop in just the last year from 37% um, uh, uh, trust a great deal or trust quite a lot down to 31%. Now that number is better than Congress, Jeff, which is uh, <laughs> hey, I got that going for me. And, and yeah. seven, and I could go on to TV news. I could go on to just about the Supreme Court, just about any institution that you have. So why is that important? I, I think it's important for a couple reasons. One, those are forms of civic engagement. Those are forms where we connect to one another. Um, and, and in the diminution of the power of those institutions, of the role they play in our lives, it's put us back on me. It's put us back on a, on a reliance on self. And Jeff, I'm just not sure people are built for that. Um, you know, yeah. we are individuals, but we're also uh, people who need each other and who, uh, some sense of, of community and connection is vital. But there's even a, a more important, I think, issue going on. Those institutions are intermediate institutions between the family, the first institution we're in, and society writ large. And there are way we connect to something outside ourselves, to what I talk about is something bigger. And you might talk about that something bigger in a specific way. Um, I would talk about it as a, as a commitment to a larger purpose beyond ourselves. And I would argue that those institutions are the, the linking device for individuals to that larger society, the linking device from me to a larger connection in the world is they've diminished, that sense of larger connection has become diminished. And, in, in, and I think in, in ways that are, are, are very problematic. The emphasis on me, the loss of we, I would argue um, is, 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 is the, the light was on that in the, in the pandemic, that sense of isolation, of lostness, of whatever. In fact, I think it reflects the pain of what it means to live with that hyper-individualism and the loss of the larger we. What, what do you think it would have been like to have gone through the pandemic years, the last two and a half years, with a strong sense of we? How, how would it have been different? Well, it's a wonderful question, Jeff. And, and, and uh, let me just intuitively tell me where that, I'll tell you where that question took me. Yeah. Have you ever been to Normandy to the D-Day landing sites? I have not, but I, I've, you know, I've seen it, but have not been there. It's a profound experience. I was there a few years ago. Uh, I was lucky enough to be on the trip with me was the, the uh, commanding general of the U.S. monuments, which are our cemeteries worldwide. Hmm. It's beautiful. It's sacred. 
it's deeply spiritual, and the rows go on forever, grave after grave after grave. And you see the dates, June 6th, June 7th onward, you know, throughout a long time. I can't look at that battlefield and not have an intense sense of what a country organized around we, a country where we the people was really potent. That war wasn't fought and won, and I would argue a very just war, by, by individuals doing their thing, by people looking out for themselves. It was won by people looking out for each other. And there was a, a larger purpose, an ideal that united us and bound us together. And I worry that absent clarity on what that larger purpose is, absent alignment around that, as we go into this hyper-individualism, you know, we, we look at what we can do as a society if we're demanding both the personal responsibility that Reagan and the Republican tradition have demanded of us. I wouldn't argue with that, but also the sense of community and togetherness that many other traditions would argue for um, and, and bringing those together. Could we have come through this in a different way? And it doesn't stop there. The question right now is where are we gonna go forward with this? You know, just to bring us back to the economic issue, Jeff, if you look at polling for uh, Gen Z and, and, and millennials, loss of faith in our institutions, questioning of democracy, questioning mm -hmm. of, 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 of whether capitalism is a viable economic form is real and prevalent. Mm -hmm. How are we gonna take that on? And I think how we get back to balance me with we is perhaps one of the most critical questions of our time. Wouldn't you have thought that a crisis might have done that? You know, where you have a common enemy, in this case, microscopic, or a common enemy, Adolf Hitler, you know, in the, in, in the 30s, 40s. Would, would you have guessed that, that this, this crisis might have, hey, this might do it, this might unify us around a common enemy, and and yet it didn't do that at all, right? We it it, it just fractured us even more. Um, what do you think? What do you think caused the fracture? I mean, caused the fracturing of, you know, masks and no masks and, you know, the all all the stuff that we went through in the pandemic that seemed to divide people deeper into tribes and as individuals. What, what drove that, and how can we transcend that? It's a great question. Um, you know, the reason I started with just some economic reality, you know, uh, you know, this is what's going on economically is because I, th I think we we undervalue that. I, I I'm guilty of it, too. I I, I I think philosophical, psychological, sociological, anthropological explanations for what's going on. <laughs> some of this is just basic economics. Sixty four percent of Americans today are living paycheck to paycheck. That includes 47% of Americans with incomes of 100,000 or more. Um, you know, Jeff, we combine that with with uh, um, uh, the impact of COVID, with uh, the the mental health crisis we're under. There's a lot of hurting people going on, and and you know, 
what do we do? I, I think we focus on ourselves. But, you know, the, the, the third factor I'd bring up, and I think it's a real one and controversial, but perhaps not, is uh, uh, what's happened with the, the growth of the Internet. I don't want to be simplistic about this in any way. But from 2000 to 2021, there was a 1,335% increase in use of social media. The average American spends 147 minutes. Uh, uh, is it a week or a month? I've got to look. Or, or is it a day? Uh, it's a day, Jeff, on social media. Now, just to put that in perspective, we spend less time as couples with each other than mm -hmm. that in a given day. In fact, if you look at time studies, it's 120 to 140 minutes with our partners, a third of which is watching TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and so why is that important? Um, and I think this really has been amplified in the pandemic. Two things. One, there's no question uh, from a tremendous amount of research that the, the increased time in use on the internet leads to social isolation and depression. That wasn't true because of the pandemic. It's certainly um, and the isolation in the pandemic, I think, brought that into great relief. And, mm -hmm. and um, um, uh, you know, is that, a, is that a healthy way for us or is that focus on me, you know? And, and you can say, well, social media, I'm focusing on that as well. We could talk about that. But the second factor, and this is the one that concerns me the most, Jeff, is there's all kinds of studies out there of, what spreads most quickly on social media? What spreads most quickly on the internet? Rage, fear, anger. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, there's, there's, there's there, joy and awesomeness also get a lot of hits, get a lot of viral activity. But if you really want to get viral activity going on the internet, go to anger, rage, and fear. You're guaranteed to go there. Yeah. Um, and and um, I, I worry that as we've 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 gone into internet silos and media silos, echo chambers where we're only listening to people who think and like us, that has polarized. It's polarized the pressures, I think, largely driven by uh, economics, but also mm -hmm. by the fact that we're in a country that is is as all countries changing um uh you know the 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 role and and um uh, scale of white folks relative to people of color is changing long term and will change so a lot of pressures on that but i'd put a a a lot of emphasis for the polarization on what's happened with media and what's happened with the internet and if I could just tell Jeff one painful story here, which I think I've shared with you before. Um, right after um, um, uh, Bush and Quayle were elected, um, I hired on behalf of, uh, of a large company, uh, Roger Ailes, uh, the founder of Fox News, um, and, and um, uh, 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 a Democratic political consultant, to consult to this company on the, the using presidential politics as a metaphor for the race they were in with another large company. And, and um, uh, I, I took Mr. Ailes and, and uh, the, the Democratic consultant out to dinner at the 
Westchester Country Club the, the night between this two-day session. And uh, they could both drink a lot, more, more than I could. And I think they were each on their third bottle, bottle or third vodka and second bottle of wine. Uh, I'd been going to the bathroom and replacing it with water because I wanted to be uh, somewhat sober for the conversation. And I turned to, to Mr. Ailes and I said, Dan Quayle? I don't know if you remember, but you know, there were some questions about Dan Quayle as, as vice president and I don't want to offend any listeners, but that's not the point of the story. And Mr. Ailes turned to me and said, well, we needed a bigger wimp. And I must tell you, Jeff, the impact on that was found on me. Because I, I was sitting there and I'd, I'd had my one vodka, but I said, wait a minute, folks. We're talking about the, the vice president of the United States of America, arguably the second most powerful job in the world. We needed a bigger wimp. That kind of orientation to news, to media has become pervasive and it's worrisome. It polarizes, and I'll just give you a, a, a sense of the concern of that, Jeff. Uh, Republicans um, uh, uh, um, uh, will tell you that Democrats are closed-minded, dishonest, and immoral. And Democrats will tell you that Republicans are closed-minded, dishonest, yeah, right. and immoral. One of the core tenets of American democracy is that we listen to each other. Yeah. We're not. Yeah, you know, I, I, as, as a, as a Christian, you know, I, I think the, the doctrine of, inf of uh, the fact that we're fallible, and, uh, and very limited, um, means that w once you believe that, then you means I, I need people who are not me, to help me, because of my fallibility, to speak wisdom into my life, even if you know who are different from me. But once you give that up it's easier to retreat to your corner. So when you think about the polarization, one thing that I've heard you say, um, and it, it's impacted me a good bit, in a, in a polarized world, especially in your world, where at, at one point you were deeply involved in political campaigns and all this stuff and in such a, a polarized political environment. Um, but I, I know one of the, the commitments that you... Uh, taught me that that has been impactful is listen to people until you can answer the question, how are they right? Pass that on to all of us. Let's have that conversation. You know, I have to uh, 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 give credit where credit's due to a, a dear and close friend of mine, Dr. Ed Shapiro, who is an eminent psychiatrist and, and um, um, a, a very interesting person. And, and he's just written a book on this called Finding a Place to Stand. But one of the things I've learned from, from Ed is that um, um, to, to get out of ourselves and to really listen to others, it means to ask ourselves very painful questions. How are they right? How are people I disagree with tremendously right? And I'll just tell you a story about this. A few years ago, I was working with a, uh, a, a well-known uh, liberal arts college in New England. And uh, they had um, uh, historically uh, been very dominated and, and organized around fraternities. 
and a new president had taken over. And in the first two months she was there, there were four fatal accidents coming out of fraternity drinking. And she felt very strongly, wait a minute, the fraternities are in control of this university. <laughs> the university is in control of this university. We're not gonna eliminate the fraternities, but we need to bring them within the, 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 the control of the university so that there's a, a common shared mission uh, about that. And she went out and spent a year traveling and talking to graduates, worked closely with her board, and they actually built $45 million worth of new housing because they assumed that many of the fraternities would say, no, we're, we're not willing to do that. And um, um, to, 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 to jump to the point, they came to the fraternities, 11 of the 12 said, yes, you're right, we completely agree. One didn't. And not only did that one fraternity not, but a, but a, 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 a very wealthy member of that fraternity, right, a former member of that mm -hmm. fraternity, had billboards all over town about how evil the president was and all kinds mm -hmm. of things. And I sat with her at dinner one night, and she was understandably upset about it. And I said to her, well, let's ask, how is he right? Mm -hmm. And she looked at me like, ah. I hate that question. I don't <laughs> yeah. want to answer that question. Yeah. But as we got into it, we realized that his fraternity experience was a rite of passage for him from being a young man to, to uh, uh, becoming an adult. And he just fervently believed in the power of that rite of passage and what it meant for him and that this was a threat to that. And once we could understand that in him, the issue is pretty resolvable. Yeah. But, you know, Jeff, I don't know about you, but uh, when I have people I vehemently disagree with, I'm immediately angry at. Yeah. And I can slow down a little bit and say, how are they right? And believe me, that's painful. <laughs> yeah. I learn a lot. Yeah. We're not doing that. We're, yeah. we're about how are they wrong. We're not about how are they right. We're about how are we separate, not about what unites us. Yeah. And, and Jeff, I'd, I'd, I'd bring that point back to the, the question of institutions. Because if those institutions aren't providing that intermediate function, that ability for individuals to connect to larger, and, and that focuses back on ourselves, A, I believe we get lost, but B, I think we worry about a loss of purpose, a lot, a, a loss of of, of 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 a common purpose that unites us all. Yeah, it's well, missing. Me, as as a leader in in one of those institutions, you know, I'm a pastor of a church. How how would what would you say to me uh, in terms of uh, how can how can the church? I know church is very broad. You know what that means, right? You've got evangelicals and liberals and you know all kind right you've got the whole gamut but but how can church how can any institution regain trust once it's lost <laughs> it's an incredibly important question and and a vital one um as you know um gen z and millennials see churches as intolerant judgmental, hypocritical, abusive, 
out of touch and irrelevant. Other it's than a that, real they're great. Yeah. Yeah. Other than that, they're great. <laughs> and and, and yeah. in terms of that. And why? Um, I would argue, Jeff, and and um, uh, for the benefit of people listening to this, just a, a little background on me. Um, um, I, I was the president of my Methodist Youth Fellowship in high school. I went to a Methodist college. My bachelor's degree was in religion. Uh, I studied religion in England. Um, I'm today what would be called a nun. I, I don't have active religious affiliation. N-O-N-E, I have, not the kind with the little habits right. and all that. So yeah, yeah N-O-N-E, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the clarification. <laughs> sure. I, I wouldn't look good in that uh, kind of garb. But I am deeply spiritual. And and I believe that uh, a, a connection to something bigger, something larger that matters. It, for me, Jeff, if I was just going to go to the point, I think that that uh, so many churches have become lost in fighting individual battles mm -hmm. and lost the perspective of the larger um, uh, war that I think we're all losing. And by the way, all this discussion this week of, well, we're headed for a civil war. Let's remember, folks, that more Americans died in the Civil War than all our wars, World War I, II, the Spanish-American War, Vietnam, all of them combined. Mm -hmm. Let's not throw that term around loosely. Yeah. And, and Jeff, you know, while I'm a N-O-N-E, I have a deep connection to the Christian concept of grace a profound connection to the Christian concept of grace, hmm. that ineffable gift that we have. And we can interpret that in lots of different ways. It's powerful. Mm -hmm. I just don't see, Jeff, in a lot of churches and in, in, a, in a lot of evangelical churches in particular, a voice that comes from grace. I hear a voice that comes from anger and judgment I understand why young people think the churches are, are um, um, uh, hypocritical and abusive and out of touch. You know, if, if, I was, if this was a political contest and a, a church was a candidate, I'd say, play from your strength. Where's the grace? Yeah. And, and, um, and no, don't play from your weakness. Play from that strength. And I'd ask you, Jeff, what you think about that. Do you, do you feel the, the voice of grace is the voice of, and I know these are writ large, no, no, of, yeah. of, of the evangelical church? That's the irony. Grace is the only thing we have. It is at the core of who of, of what Christianity is. The, the one thing that makes it different from every other religion in the world is grace at, at its heart, uh, expressed through irrational love. And uh, that is our that is who we are, who we're called to be, our brand, and we have lost touch with our brand, and nobody connects us to that. And so we have a lot of work to do to recover our brand internally, and then to connect that just authentically as we live that way to, to a culture that has written us off as we've entered into culture wars, as we've gotten sidetracked by all kinds of things. And personally, I'm actually really optimistic about and I, I and so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask I'm gonna turn it back to you here in a minute. But personally, I'm I'm very optimistic about the future 
of uh, of what I'm involved in. And I know not everybody that listens to the Good Complex are Christians. Um, not even all the cre- the creators of the Good Complex are e- like you are evangelical Christians. But um, but as an evangelical, I, what I see and, and what I think will happen is there will be an evangelical split of those who dive deeper into culture wars and the polarization and all of that. That'll be regrettable. But there's also a, a rebirth of, of evangelical leaders and evangelicals finding our core again, grace, uh, learning how to express that. And, and our world is so hungry for it that I believe there'll be a major turning toward it. So I, I'm, I'm actually optimistic about the future, concerned about the present, optimistic about the future. When, when you look at the future in light of where we are, which is pretty dark, I mean, the stuff we've talked about, the economic disparities and the polarization and the loss, I mean, if you lose a sense of we, well, that's, that's not small. <laughs> that's, uh, uh, that's, that's not something you can lose, and that's not something that's easy to recapture. So, so all the stuff we've talked about is pretty dark, you know? So as you look at the future, um, do you have any... Do you have any optimism or any, anything that you would look at that would say, you know, I, I think there is, there's a long way to go, a lot to do, but yeah, I see some room for optimism in this or this or this. Is there any of that uh, as you look ahead? You know, Jeff, I'll share with folks a story about you. I, I met you first in the early 2000s. I'd been asked by a friend of both of ours to speak with you and your other pastors. Yeah, And um, I was reluctant. I said, hey, you know, theologically and politically, I'm not sure we're in the same place. <laughs> and I, I, I said to my, my friend, I, you know, I, I'm happy to meet, but I've got real clear boundaries here. And I had an experience that surprised me. I felt deeply listened to by you and your other pastors in between the period 2002 or so and about 2009. 2009, I flew down to Dallas to see my friend, who's a business colleague, and uh, um, uh, had been planning to see you on that trip. And as I landed, I, I got a message that uh, I was going to have dinner that night only with you, not, not with him. And I got to a restaurant and sat down, and you looked at me and said, you're right. And I was delighted. And I said, I'm happy that I was right. What was I right about? And you said to me, we've been using our power on behalf of the powerful, not the powerless. That's not what Jesus had in mind, was it? And I must tell you, Jeff, that had an incredibly big impact on me. It gave me a great deal of hope. I felt I'm by no means claiming any input into the evolution of you or your church, but I felt listened to, I felt joined, and I felt a real connection to the work that you were doing. And I am 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 not necessarily in all the same places politically and theologically as you are, but we found a way to join and unite over common territory of what matters. 
I would argue, over grace and, and finding out what that meant. So do I have any optimism? You know, I would say right now I'm concerned. I, I worry that we're, we're all of us in America like lemmings fighting each other as we go over the cliff. And we'll be fighting and yelling. I worry that we're going to fight as we're falling off the cliff and falling down. And, you know, we, we've all got to step back from, well, I want to win this battle. I, you know, whether it's uh, abortion or gender or whatever, that's so important to me. And say, wait a minute, are we all at risk of losing the larger war, of losing the perspective? I think we are. I think we have to have a, a, some real thoughtfulness, and our leaders have to have real thoughtfulness uh, uh, about that kind of an approach. But to care is to listen. And can we begin to, can we recover that American tradition? You know, American democracy isn't built on I'm right, you're wrong. American democracy is built on civility decency, reasonableness, self-control, taking care of each other, respect for everyone, and most of all, listening to each other. Yeah. You know, I, I know it's a, it's a polarized America on one level when we look at the Norman Rockwell photos of the town hall meeting. But that, that notion of are we listening to each other, I think is so vital. Are we asking how the other is right? Yeah. Can we do that? Can churches, can intermediate institutions take up a role in connecting us to that something bigger, that larger, I would argue, from a, a church point of view, grace. But, you know, Jeff, I'd leave you with this. Like all tra tragedies, the pandemic shines a bright light on, on our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when our friends die, when people we care about die or have troubles, it's painful. It shines a light. And we don't like that light. We don't like, but the question is, how do we use that light? Do we use that light to enrich our lives, to experience the gratitude and appreciation, to gain perspective? Or do we close ourselves off and, and, and do that? So the pandemic has shown an incredibly bright light yeah. around where we are now. The question is, will we use it? Will we ask how the other is right? Will we say, it's not just about me, it's about we, and it's about finding a larger purpose? Do I have optimism about that? Yes. Well, that's a great last word. And I really, uh, that, that's really at the heart of what we're doing here at The Good Complex. And uh, Dwight, thank you so much for being one of the originators of the idea. Thank you for your injection into this conversation uh, as we all learn and try to move toward a better future by choosing to be humble enough to respect, listen uh, with those who agree, with those who disagree, and not put each other in the category of the other, to quit doing that, to realize, no, we're all, we're all actually the same. And, uh, and we actually care about the same things. And so let's move forward together. So that was a pretty amazing, intense, and, and often funny conversation with Dwight. And I think what really stood out to me was him talking about the 
me versus we, that we've really lost that we mentality and it's fractured the country in yeah. so many different ways. And how do we get that we back? Yeah. Is it possible to get it back? And has, you know, politics or religion or those kinds of things divided us so deeply that we'll never be the same. Um, but he, he did have some other things that um, I know you're going to talk about that did give me some hope. Yeah, I think his insistence on, you know, people who disagree, you know, getting out of our tribes, getting out of our polarization, uh, to, to try to gain a sense of we, to get out of our little, you know, echo chambers. Um, I, I've really benefited, you know, in, in the past from him. He's, he's made me ask at times with different groups that I'm not so excited about. Okay, Jeff, how are they right? And that's a very powerful question. And, and it will, it, and I think if we can get back to listening to each other and not reacting to each other, that'll be a huge step forward. And it feels like people have to be tired by now of the polarization. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just have to be. I, I still think we're kind of at a place where people are tired of the polarization, but they think it's the other side's fault, right. you know, <laughs> right? Yes. So what we've got to do is somehow get to, wait a minute, you know, let's, let's, to find our sense of we, let's just listen to each other and find what we can all there, there, there are some things that we have in common that we can actually move the ball forward. And like as a Christian, when Dwight first, you know, he, he talked about that dinner and, and I had asked him to help us to, to work with us as a, as a church to better engage our community and, and present who we are to our community. And he wasn't going to work with us. He told me that night because he felt like it would be immoral for him to do so to help an evangelical church in Dallas, Texas, have more influence, that that would be immoral for him. Wow. Because we were the bad people, right? Mm -hmm. And until he, you know, learned that, oh, wait a minute. No, I, I understand who you are. We actually have common ground. And yeah, I want to be part of this. And and we, we've been able to move forward together in some really cool ways because we were willing to listen to each other. And I think that can happen in our culture, but we've just... We've got to be the ones not to wait on the other side to do that, whatever side we're on. I think we've got to be the ones to initiate engagement, to listen, how are they right, and so on. Uh, otherwise, we're not going to get anywhere. I think that really, he told lots of good stories and gave great examples throughout the interview. But I think the one that he gave, talking about having dinner with you and, and you saying you were right, and it it took him aback. You know, he wasn't expecting that. And I think that is such a great thing when you stop and you try and think, how are they right? Because it will surprise people. And then they realize, oh, okay, so they don't see me as the enemy. And you you start building brick by brick, a little bridge. Yeah. And so that's, I think that's truly the only way anything's going to get done is, and just seeing that he told that story and you could tell it really did profoundly impact him. And now you guys have this great relationship yeah. that never would have existed if you hadn't been looking for where he was right. And he wasn't open to where you were right. And I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. A guy here in the Dallas area named Zan Holmes. Uh, well, now he's, he's retired, but he was the most predominant African-American pastor in the civil rights era in Dallas and, and was, uh, was really influential in, in helping some things move forward. And, one of the things that he, I've heard him say this often, is that all a, a bridge is is a wall turn sideways. Uh -huh. And so he would always challenge anybody to, if, if you're 
if you're looking at this other group of people and, you know, that you're walled off from, just turn it sideways and how can you build a bridge of connection? And, and I think what Dwight is sharing can really help us do that. And, and that's a big part of what we're doing in the good complex, right, is anywhere we see a wall, let's turn it sideways and build a bridge. And so let me, let me encourage you, uh, wherever, what, wherever you are, whatever side you're on about anything, uh, let's just work our muscles of building bridges where so many people are building walls uh, so that we can move forward together out of this pandemic, find a sense of we, and make our world better. Thank you so much for being part of The Good Complex and for engaging this episode. 